Hi, I'm Mike Duran. And I'm Marshall Kozlov. Welcome to Counterbalance. Mike, this is an episode that I feel has been on our minds for a long time. When we first started talking about putting together counterbalance, we were interested in the idea that institutions, whether they're the media, the policy world, government, had fundamental problems that made them unable to address a lot of the challenges that people were focused on. So this conversation with Alana Newhouse really resonated with me, and I'm glad you brought it up. So why were you interested in speaking with Alana around this topic? Oh, for exactly that reason, because I think you and I both feel like everything is broken. Uh, I just feel like so many institutions that I engage with, so many conversations that I have with people are not real anymore. I feel like people don't actually even say what they really think. We're, we're, we're kind of just uh, scripted in so, in so many ways. And so when she wrote that, uh, it really resonated with me. And I thought that that needs to be a kind of theme of what we're doing here. And the key thing is we've included Alana, who is the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine's piece, Everything's Broken in the Show Notes, so be sure to check it out after the episode. But a key question for you, Mike, and I was wondering this in the lead-up to the episode, what does this idea of brokenness, what does this idea of really constrained conversation have to do with the broader foreign policy angle that we're focused on? You know, I think I quoted in here in one of our previous episodes with Mike Gallagher, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who said domestic politics is foreign policy and foreign policy is domestic politics. So there really isn't uh, the, the, the debate about foreign policy today is no longer one about what's going on in the world out there. What are American interests? Obviously, that is part of the, the, of the discussion, but I feel it increasingly uh, subsumed by the domestic political debate. And I feel like so many of those conversations about the world beyond our borders really are scripted. And they're, they're really not, uh, they're, they are really not people trying to come up with a kind of rich contextualization about what's happening in the world. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not weighing different ideas. They're not willing to entertain other ideas. It's all kind of been scripted somewhere else. It's not, like, like I feel about publications. I feel like Twitter is the editor of, of almost every major publication now. There's nobody out there who has a different voice than the one that you, you've already seen on, uh, on Twitter. That's true about foreign policy discussions, too. And to tie this all together, anyone who covers the D.C. foreign policy space knows that it's one that's uniquely built off of institutions in a way that other policy areas aren't going to be, too. So as you're thinking during this episode as a listener, really consider the idea that the way that domestic institutions and domestic credibility, whether that's in the media, whether that's in technology companies or corporations or even the State Department or White House, all this plays together the way I think your quote from Jake Sullivan really pulls together well. Before we dive into the episode, Mike and I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who subscribed, downloaded, shared our first episode. It's incredibly exciting to see this great feedback this early. We're going to keep at it, but we really appreciate it. Be sure to continue reviewing, share it with your friends, bring your family into it. It's going to be a really exciting journey if you all over the course of the season. So it's really appreciate it. 
Yeah, I understand that uh, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen are actually really fearful that we're going to overtake them. I thought we were an anti-fake news podcast, Mike. Marshall, please. Alana Newhouse, welcome to Counterbalance. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to great to have you here. You wrote this amazing article. Um, Everything is broken. You know, the minute I saw it, I wanted to have you on because when Marshall and I were talking about um, some of the ideas behind our podcast, one of the things that Marshall said was that everything is broken, that this is a theme. He has a he has another uh, podcast that he does with uh, Sagar and Jetty. And he said that one of the themes that came out in their podcast is that everything is broken. And that's that's something that everyone feels and that we need to talk about. And that's before your article came out. So when I when when your article came out, I thought, wow, that, that is exactly the kind of thing that we want to talk about. So uh, let me pass it over to Marshall for a second. He'll tell you a little bit about some of the other ideas that we have about what, what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah. So the name of the show is Counterbalance, and we're trying to counterbalance in the discourse, especially. And this is once again, something your episode, not this is something that your article really spoke to, which is the idea that you have these seemingly rotting, festering institutions, whether they're in the media, academia, public policy world that all have a very specific perspective. And if you can't find ways to either counteract or lean against those narratives, the country, foreign policy, all these different issues are going to come really to the fore. So even though your article was more focused on the domestic side of American politics, culture, society, we still think the underlying framework applies to of a podcast. So I think this is just a great place to get started Everyone probably has their own iteration of this, but why did you feel the urge, the need to write that everything felt broken in January of 2021? I think a part of it comes from a personal understanding of journalism, which is the field I'm ostensibly in, um, to the extent that it is, as a field it exists um, anymore. Um, there are a lot of different, people have different definitions of what it meant to be a journalist and what the point of it was, what the purpose was. Um, for a lot of people, it was speaking truth to power. It was lancing people on pedestals. It was uh, challenging authority. Uh, for me, the compelling part of journalism was the mirroring effect. I was very, very interested in people and I was interested in communities and societies and I was interested in the idea that I could conceivably act as a mirror and mirror back to some uh, defined group of people what their life looked like. And the idea behind it was that if journalism did its job, it mirrored back to the parts of your life that you liked and you tried to preserve those. And it also mirrored back to you the parts of your life that you didn't like and you then could work to fix it. Once you and the people around you had some sense of a reasonable uh, vision of what the problem or the, uh, the asset was. Um, it, for a variety of reasons, journalism doesn't really mirror anymore, um, in part because it's deeply disconnected from actual humans at a human and local level. 
Um, but I still wanted to mirror something back. And when I, when I thought about what I felt when I did do reporting and when I did speak to readers and when I did go out into the world and see the world myself, the thing I needed to mirror back was that, that everything felt um, very rickety and deeply unresponsive to humans and to how they live their lives, to how they find meaning and purpose and get their basic needs met. Um, it felt deeply broken. Now there, there's, there, there's a lot that you just brought up there. Um, I want to dive into, I think maybe, maybe we should have you just describe this article a little bit before, before we do. Sure. And I, this whole idea of mirroring it is, I think it's very deep, but let, let, let me not take you there yet. Let's, um, you started this, the, the article with this amazing story, uh, 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 about the birth of your child. Maybe you could just start us out that way and then we'll go back to the journalism question. Sure. The piece is about, ultimately is about big systems and what happens when big systems stop being responsive to the people that they ostensibly are supposed to be serving. Um, in order to explore with people how one way that I had come to understand how broken one of the systems in America was, which is the medical establishment, um, I took them through a personal story of the birth of my son um, and uh, an injury that had clearly had happened to him uh, during labor and birth and the many, many years that it took me to figure it out in part because um, the medical system is not designed to, um, it's not designed to help people. Um, and it's certainly not designed to help people, to find people individual help at local and grassroots levels. Um, so, and I, I mean, one thing I didn't mention in the story, but which is, something that came out of the hundreds and hundreds of responses to the piece. Um, you know, my father was a doctor. My father was a general practitioner. He had a practice in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and he had that practice for 60 years. It's not simply that he had a patient for that, the, the duration of that patient's entire adulthood. It's also that he knew that patient's wife, knew that patient's parents, knew that patient's children and all the complications that they may have had, knew where the patient worked, if the patient worked in an environment that might have had chemicals, right? So when you actually address a patient, you know, is this patient a little neurotic? Do they tend to be hysterical about things that don't exist? Also, where do they live? What's the, what are the other things that might be going on for them? Um, when you treat them, you treat them with an enormous amount of human knowledge about who they are. Right. Now, when I went to uh, a series of doctors, they'd never met me before. As far as they were concerned, I could just be another lunatic New York City shrew, um, which I also I may be as well as the thing that I was, <laughs> which is a person who actually had a perception about something that turned out to be right. But of course, I didn't have, you know, when now on the other side of it, when I speak to people, they say, my God, could you imagine, Alana, if you had a doctor who actually knew you? And it's true. If I had a doctor who knew me, I think that that would have made a world of difference. Um, but 
there are bigger systemic problems. It's not only about not knowing your doctor. It's about what the incentives are in these big industries for uh, for human touch and really engaging with people. There is no financial or business incentive um, to do anything other than, frankly, just give people a bunch of drugs. Um, so. What I tried to use is I tried to use this personal anecdote to then get into what happened. The medical system's not, it's not, a, um, it's not an exception. It's an example of systems that have grown. In, and again, the medical, medical system is such a great example because in so many ways, the medical system has become so sophisticated. Think about how quickly we got three vaccines out in a, in a pandemic year. Um, whether, and again, we, everyone and other people can fight about the efficacy of those vaccines, about the long-term effects of those vaccines. The bottom line is, is we have three vaccines, um, that have very good, uh, short-term testing results. Um, that's an amazing feat of American enterprise, research, development. Um, it's just that it has gone along with the devolution of real care of humans at a at a individual and communal level. Does that help anything? Does that get us to where we want to get? Well, no, it it does. Especially, I want to pull the thread you focused on about the dissolution of the local because it actually ties back to you starting with journalism and journalism's very literal decline because that local story is fascinating. Because, and I'd love for you to get into your work at Tablet, obviously, because. There's so many conflicting threads. So if we're talking about these big institutions, and I really love how in the piece you tie them to the story of the 20th century post-1970s, you see trust in media, especially big media as exemplified by CNN, Fox, MSNBC, the New York Times, this isn't purely an ideological factor, has really collapsed. Yet at the same time, many of these companies, the New York Times especially, are doing incredibly well right now. The New York Times has never employed more journalists in more coverage areas than any point in their history. They have literally tens of millions of subscribers in various ways. But at the same time, at a local level, local journalism has completely collapsed as an institution for many of the technological reasons you were speaking to before. So could you speak both as a person who leads tablet, but also as someone who's interested in this local dissolution of our local institutions, which actually did have more of a personal trust. People will point out that the local news actually has the, the, the place in the media where people have the most trust is their hometown paper, but at the same time, they probably don't pay for that paper. The paper may actually go away. So can you just speak to these themes here? Yeah. Um, okay. So um, the recent history of American journalism, not the entire history of American journalism, but the recent history and certainly the history that people like to make treacly uh, movies about um, is a history of an industry, think about it as a pyramid. At the very bottom, there are hyper-locals. And by hyper-locals, I mean everything from a village paper to a supermarket circular, right? You're talking deeply local, a, a, a layer of deeply local publications. Um, as you go up, you may get into county papers, um, slightly broader regional uh, newspapers, weeklies, and then you go up, you may get, you, and you get into city papers. Um, maybe if you live in a major metro area, you have um, one, of the, one of the big major metro uh, papers. 
As you go up, you start getting into the metros that turned out to have national audiences and national coverage, um, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, and so forth. Then you go up and in my conception of the pyramid, you then have news weeklies, news weekly magazines, Time, Life, Newsweek. Um, on top of that, there are thought leader magazines. And the thought leader magazines are all different depending on where you're from regionally and also what your interest level is. So, um, but the thing about, that's interesting about the thought leader magazines is, is if you were a Harper's reader, they all had their own uh, community of weirdos. If you were a Harper's reader, you were not a New Yorker reader. Like those things were kind of, were for a long time at least very separate. Um, I, I know I'm gonna get the call from the six people in New York and Manhattan who actually were both subscribers of both of those magazines, but I hear you, I, I know you exist, but in general, you're not actually the rule. Um, but the most important thing to understand is, is nobody read just the top of the pyramid. Nobody only read Harper's and then that was their whole news diet. It was insane, right? You had, if you were reading the top, you had that whole pyramid underneath you. And this is the thing that I think is very important. Local news was the key to the trust in that entire pyramid. And for a variety of reasons that I think are interesting to think about and pull at, but um, I think that you're right to pick up the idea that uh, people have enormous trust in their local papers. And I think that you're right that uh, the disintegration of news at a local level is, if, while it may not be affecting the bottom line of a few um, brands that have managed to outlast the thousands of brands that used to be in this pyramid, um, the trust in the whole structure has drained out. It's gone. You, you When you initially started talking about journalism, you, you mentioned that there used to be more of a, I can't remember how you put it, but the idea was an organic connection between an actual community of people. Correct. Uh, as opposed to sort of, you know, some kind of Twitter community, uh, I, I suppose, you know, the uh, real people who knew each other, talked to each other, um, they had a connection to journalistic outlets. Uh, and and that is gone. And so is that, the, I found that, concept you introduced mirroring uh to to be to be very interesting because how do we how do we conceive of the community that we live in like what who who gives us the picture of the community from the local community to the united states or what the united states is that where do we where do we see that and uh if there's not a direct connection between the people and the and the structures that are giving us that picture, it, it, it we we very quickly you know enter into a kind of black mirror world. It's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I would say that that mirroring happens. You're right that the mirroring when it when we had a successful or when we had a different media landscape, that mirroring happens at a lot of different levels and that there was national mirroring to some extent. Um, the national mirroring was the most problematic, the least accurate, always. Um, the most about people's preferred narratives of things, which were 
useful and interesting. I mean, I have a narrative of myself in my life that may I that someday I may figure out is not true and then I may change my life. Like that's not it's not an evil, although sometimes I think that it was that, that national narratives portrayed falsehoods. Um, but the more important thing is, is that the national narratives were the, in some senses the least powerful, the least operative, um, and the least interesting. Now, people only wanna talk about national. They only wanna talk about mirroring some national identity, which is where the whole thing falls apart because there is no such thing. Like we, I, I don't know, I can't explain it, but it's like, who cares what, right. Right. what happens at a national level and also, don't you understand that if you if you pretend that there's some two-dimensional picture of this country, which is an enormous country, both in land mass and number of people, you are inevitably flattening the most interesting parts of the country, which are the things that make us very, very different. And the thing that makes our, the thing that makes our narratives different, the thing that makes our uh, our senses of the future different. Um, all of those things used to be highlighted, not suppressed and dimmed out. And the way that it got highlighted was by having that regional, local bright lights. And right. you had the lights come up throughout the country at a local level. And those lights competed with each other and they sang together and they influenced each other or they fought little wars and some of them won. And that is what made America, I think, what made the American national story uh, ultimately progressive in the definition of the term, uh, like the basic definition of the term progressive. Um, it moved because it was moved by locals constantly fighting. Um, once you decide that you're gonna instead kind of cover us all over with some big blanket, and whoever, whoever controls the blanket today gets to control the sense of national purpose. And then it can flip. The next week, somebody else can control, like literally four years, these four years, one person controls the blanket, the next four years, somebody else controls the blanket. You've completely taken out the volition and the sense of, of engagement on the part of actual humans. And it's just a blanket. It's like, it's so boring. It's not really, there's no, there's no energy in it. There's no engagement. There's no sense that you could determine your fate. Like, it's just, you, you've leached everyone of all reason to wake up in the morning and say anything or believe anything or do anything or build anything. Aspire to anything different. Determined. Yeah. yeah. I want to speak to something you wrote in the article in that I think I'll just read the line specifically. You spoke of how old institutions were capable of promoting an intellectual and cultural life. These were universities, newspapers, magazines, think tanks, Hollywood series, et cetera, that could actually make something coherent out of the chaos of a big and unwieldy country such as the US. So I would love to in a semi-two-parter, get to what you think caused those institutions to cease to be able to fulfill that purpose, but then speak to not quite a contradiction in what you're saying, but 
how was it possible, even during the 60s, before the 1970 period you refer, to cohere anything? That's what's just so difficult because you're describing this country that's so difficult to cohere together, but it was somehow able to be done before. So how do you just conceive of all this? So the important thing to say is that um, the piece doesn't posit it, nor do I believe that there was a moment of perfection um, in terms of how we understood ourselves, the country, um, in terms of who had freedom and protection legally. Um, that is absolutely not the case. And in part, the country uh, in ways that we all are aware of and in many ways that we may be even blind to, um, there were suppressions of lots of different voices throughout American history, which are range from problematic to sinful. What I have consistently said though, is that America is a country of expanding freedom. We, we have kept expanding the universe of freedom um, from our inception as a country until now. And that is something to be very proud of. We should keep expanding those freedoms and, and understand that the goal is to give more people the opportunity uh, for ambition and success and value that waves of Americans had and the opportunity to build societies and families and lives, right? So I wanna, it's important for me that I, I not be seen as harking back to some perfect moment um, right. that then we lost and now we can't get back. It's also really important that I not be seen as um, making a plea for everybody throwing out their phones and not using email anymore and picking up their carrier pigeon. I'm not actually doing that. What I am saying is, is that there was a way to negotiate between competing identities, competing value systems, competing institutions, that because they were all rooted in some sense of um, connectedness to each other, orchestrated a symphony. Different people did their part, different uh, regions did their part, different institutions did their part, but they saw themselves as acting together. That feels missing for me right now. Um, and I guess the, big, the, the, the only way to answer your question, the, your other question is because of technology. But anyway, I can get to that. I'll tell you what I found so powerful about the essay. Um, I, what made it fresh and different is that you touched on a lot of things that um, people are aware of. You know that journalism is broken. Um, you you also you you also took it for a little while in a political direction, and you said you know that progressivism there's this flatness. And that progressivism has been able to slot right in there, particularly in the in the journalistic sphere, um, and it's progressivism is thriving in this current environment. But you 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 didn't give a political answer, and that's what I really liked. You 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 took you took the 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 larger um, analysis and uh, remedy 
in in a different direction because I I don't I I myself have been groping. I I feel that something has really been lost. And I don't feel that any of the obvious ideological or political answers are going to be sufficient to get back what has been lost. And you took us in that direction. I want to, and I'm, we'll get back to remedies in a, in a second. But maybe you could just walk us through some of the thought processes that that you you must have you must have decided that this thing the problem is bigger than politics the problem is bigger than silicon valley it's a lot of intersecting issues and that's that is what i think is is powerful cuz this you kind of have a theory of everything and theories of everything can get lost you know they can they can be too big but somehow you you were able to bring it down to the concrete Thank you. You know, I got a letter from a reader. Maybe this is, I don't know if it's useful to talk about tablet uh, in this, uh, at this point in the conversation, but I got a letter from a reader um, who was very mad because uh, tablet didn't take a stand on some random political thing that happened uh, one day last week. And it was something so marginal. Um, oh, you know what? It was about Ted Cruz's Cancun trip. <laughs> Tablet didn't take a position. <laughs> Tablet didn't take a position on Ted Cruz's, on oh, Ted Cruz's I'm sorry. Cancun trip. Yeah. And this was um, deeply problematic for one of our readers who <laughs> believed that it was my responsibility, it was our responsibility to tell people what to think about. Um, about that fiasco. Um, I wrote back some kind of general response, like, I understand, uh, I appreciate you thinking of us and I appreciate the authority that you invest in us. You know, Tablet's not a political magazine or journal. Uh, We don't, it's not our, uh, we're not a political magazine. Um, or a magazine about politics. Um, so there are gonna be a lot of things that uh, we don't cover. And this person wrote back and said, what do you mean you're not a magazine? What do you mean you're not about a politics magazine? And I actually wrote back and said, you know, we're a magazine about um, Jewish identity and Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. Politics is part of that, but we are not a politics magazine that happens to also talk about Jews. We, the, the, my interest, politics is an instrument. It isn't meaning. It's an instrument to get you things in life that can give you the things you want and that can get you the life that you want. When you start to see politics as an end, you'll forgive me, both of you, but then everything starts to feel like DC, which is terrible. Um, hey, I don't think I don't think Marshall is really a DC creature. Are you, Marshall, you're a you're a you spend a lot of your time in New York, don't you? Am yeah, I wrong yeah. about that? <laughs> the, it's 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 just funny because yeah, it'd be, it'd be deeply hurtful if my conception was Marshall Kozlov DC man. But no, that does. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. there are people, yeah. like the idea. I we know exactly. We know exactly. We know exactly what politics, you mean. Politics, politics as an end. 
I understand that if you're a pol- if you work in politics, but now it feels like the whole country works in politics. Like even my dentist in Cleveland who reads me, it feels like he feels like he has to see politics as an end, not as a mean. We've forgotten that politicians are instruments. That is right. ultimately what they are. They're not your friend. They're not your idol. They're not your rabbi or your priest. They're not. A, they don't necessarily have to be a moral leader, but nor do they have. No, but they can be if that's what you want. The point is, is they are an instrument, and in this country, those instruments are designed around particular regions, and you represent the people in that region, and you're supposed to bring them the things that will make that region feel better and bring more opportunity and possibility to the people who live there. We have somehow forgotten that very, very basic concept, which is that they are they work for us. But also, I mean, it, it go, it, what you're also saying, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I mean, this is what I he- heard you saying through the whole conversation. If you flatten life and you say that the thing that gives me, the, the thing that defines who I am you know, and, and gives me meaning is that, is that uh, you know, I support you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. What a, what a horrible, horrible uh, desiccation of life and a meaning is that. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, it does seem to me to be something that's happening. Uh, we always have a class of people who, for whom politics was an end. Um, and that was okay. That was, I almost see them as having been, they're, sac- like, they're doing the work that I would never want to do, right? They, they took on this idea of politics as an end and they had to focus on politics all day so that the rest of us didn't have to. Um, technology and the internet um, and the ways of social media have made it so that we are all now political animals. I saw the week before, in the few months before the election, um, I received two different um, pictures um, in my inbox. And this relates to Jewish life. One of them was, one was a video of um, some rabbis uh, reading in the style that we, the, there's a certain kind of cancellation that you use when you read Torah um, on, in synagogue. Um, and they were reading from the, uh, from the synagogue. They were reading um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decision <laughs> in Torah cancellation. <laughs> The next picture in my inbox was a picture of a bunch of men um, in, out in uh, uh, Brighton Beach uh, in Brooklyn, uh, praying in a synagogue with the ark open, with Torahs there, with uh, Trump 2020 uh, flags, um, like capes. Um, and I looked at it, both of those pictures and I was like, all of you people are idol worshipers. Like that's all I see. It's, yeah. it is all, it's all wrong. And this, this, the idea that politics has become our God is so pitiful. It is so depressing and pitiful. Um, and frankly, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a mark of a particular class of people. That class of people happens to be very dominant. Um, uh, we hear a lot of them, they're very loud. Um, the good thing about it is, is that when you go down and you meet people at local levels, um, they tend to find that 
approach to politics as maddening and depressing um, as it is, obviously. Speaking of maddening and depressing, I do feel the need to get one foreign policy specific question in there because you actually have this really, frankly, depressing uh, sort of metaphor slash picture of the U.S. as this, what is it? It's a, it's a boat. There's 330 million people on the boat. And there's also an additional 4 million miles of land that's encapsulated here. And the boat's just full of holes. And listening to the conversation up until now, it's very clear what those holes are. As you think of the rest of the world, how do you see how the U.S. fits into that picture? Are there a bunch of other ships that are also full of holes? Are there people who've managed to find dry land? How do you think about the international picture there? Because that should that should gird how depressed we are about this. If it turns out that everyone has a variety of problems that they can't solve, if it turns out everyone has weakening institutions, at least that suggests that we are not exceptional in this state of brokenness. But I'm just curious how you think about it. It's a great question. Um, and in some senses, I think that I'm casting around to learn more about the world to see what state everyone else's ship is in. And I think that there are ships in very different states, um, in part for the very obvious reason that there are ships of different ages. Um, so Nigeria is a very different looking ship than England. <laughs> like they're, um, they are different historically, um, different uh, at different states of building, um, and at different states of embracing of technology. Um, so the short answer is that the, what's, I guess what I would say is, is the great thing about your question is, I think that even asking the question will make you less depressed. Mm -hmm. It has, it's made me less depressed because I've been cast, because it's a, it's a great way of looking around the world and seeing how other countries are approaching um, challenges and there are some global challenges. Um, technology is a global change. Um, the tech revolution is something that affects um, at this point, every continent. Um, it affects countries in different ways. And, uh, but it's interesting global challenge. Then there are individual local regional countrywide challenges and every country is doing things differently. Um, what I will say is that, and you know, in some senses, you know, you, you guys are the better people to talk to about what happens to a chessboard when the knight becomes a pawn. Um, I, you know, when, what happens when pieces change their strength and value. Um, I think we're still watching it happen. I think it's happened at other times in American history. So I don't feel, I don't have a kind of a sense that we are simply weakening ourselves into uh, obsolescence. I don't feel that way about America. Um, that said, um, would it be useful to the world if we actually figured out our shit? 
Probably. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. like it would, we're a very, very large, very, very powerful country with an enormous hold on global culture and uh, sensibility. And it is waning, but it is still certainly uh, influential. And I think that the reason why we've been influential is because of that identity as the, uh, the holder of this notion of expanding freedom. And I think that humans just want more freedom. And so the country that seems like it has the potion um, is gonna be powerful, but it doesn't have to be. Other things can replace it. Let me, let me ask you a little bit about Tablet. Uh, because you, as the editor, you have to deal with all these questions and, that we've been talking about with respect to journalism in, in a very practical way. Now, uh, I write for Tablet. I'm not Jewish. You said it's a Jewish magazine, but increasingly it, it, it treats a lot of issues that are not specifically Jewish. Um, does that relate to what we're talking about? Because I, I can see that as a Jewish magazine, it does create that organic connection between a specific community of people who actually know each other and are concerned about their fate. But then it, but then it's more and more, I see a wider range of issues there than just Jewish issues. Yeah. How did that, how did that happen? And how does that relate to what we're talking about? So what I would say is that, um, running tablet over this decade uh, was very useful um, and very, very formative for me because I managed, even though I was running an internet magazine, I managed to have a community that I was at least trying to mirror. A lot of other magazines or websites, um, as Mike was alluding to before, um, have these imaginary faceless audiences, some of whom you may meet on Twitter, but you don't actually even know who any of those people are. You don't know who you're mirroring back, right? Um, you Maybe I can tell you something about their demographics, but you don't really know who they are as people. You've never met them. You've never sat next to them at a bar. Like you, your sense of, uh, you your fully textured 3D sense of who they are is um, not the same. Tablet, because I was actually connected to a specific kind of reader, who's an American Jewish reader um, that found themselves uh, affiliated with American Jewish institutions, by which I don't necessarily mean the ones that you think of, um, you could be a member of a Jewish of a group of kids who are really interested in Jewish tradition and the environment. Um, you could be uh, a member of a local uh, soup kitchen that came out of a Jewish federation. Because we all went to go speak at these institutions, and because these were the readers who we kept connected to, it was a the mirroring was uh, I think frankly easier for us. And the mirroring mm -hmm. makes you better as a journalist because you can't just throw something out there and pretend that it mirrored a cohort correctly because our cohort actually would respond and tell us like, we have no idea who you're talking about. That doesn't ring true. Mm. 
which keeps you just comprehensively at least more able to commit to honesty or commit to the idea of needing to um, needing to mirror somebody properly. Um, then the Jewish community is quite complicated in America. Um, it now, most Jewish communities see themselves as including people that they see of as Jewish adjacent. Um, and that ended up being very true for tablet on the internet too. Um, so we have a lot of readers who are not Jewish. They're not in any given month actually now, you know, a quarter of a third or a third of our readers are not Jewish. Um, and that initially started out as kind of when we would do demographic uh, studies of our readers, they were mostly the Jewish, the non-Jewish relatives of Jews, um, people mm. who are married to Jews, people whose uh, child married a Jew. Um, now it's like people who have no connection at all to Jewish life uh, practically, but who feel kindred with our sense of, I don't know, with what we think is useful to wake up every day and think about. And in that respect, I've almost come to see tablet as Shabbat table, meaning this is a dinner rooted in my community and my tradition. But like a lot of the Shabbat dinners that I grew up with, plenty of people around the table are not Jewish and plenty of the topics are not about Jewish life. We're sitting and we're talking about the news of the week. Is the excuse for us to sit around together um, some part of Jewish culture, Jewish life, Jewish history um, is the uh, atmosphere, um, are the markers and the rooting and the meaning given to, to me, the hostess, um, by my tradition? Yes. Does that close off any doors? No, it should only open them. It seems to me you moved into a space that used to exist in American journalism. Let's say like the New Republic of yore. The New Republic, when, I, when I, I first learned about the New Republic when I was in college, started reading it, I think it was a Jewish magazine, but it was like a Jewish magazine of the kind that you're, de of, that you're describing. Everybody, almost everybody in it, who, uh, everybody running it, you know, was Jewish. Uh, there were a few non-Jews, but, but, but it didn't announce itself as Jewish. And, and that was true of a lot of our publishing life, I assume. I don't really know the history of our publishing life. But all of those things have died. They've all died. And you, you've kind of absorbed that place in the culture, that those, that those readers. Is that, is that a conscious effort or did that just sort of happen? It just, it just sort of happened. Magazines, uh, I think, develop in some senses very uh, naturally and organically around the, you know, in, the, in response to the times around them. But um, I will say that, um, that in a funny way, uh, I've, a reader uh, once said to me something that I thought was so funny. He said, you know, the New Republic in the 90s build itself as a general interest magazine. But in its heart, we all knew it was a Jewish magazine. It was almost like it had general interest costuming. And Tablet <laughs> is the inverse. It has this Jewish costuming, but we all know that you're a magazine for everyone. And I thought that that was very, um, I thought it was really insightful. I've been playing with that uh, 
ever since ever since that reader uh, mentioned that to me. That's I, funny. I hesitate as a think tank denizen to turn this to solutions because okay. that's in of itself sort of what we're ostensibly supposed to do, but also would, would suggest that I missed the entire point of the conversation, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyways, because that's what I am paid to do. And I'm going to do that. So can you grasp at solutions? Can you grasp, maybe, maybe a better way of thinking about isn't that I'm going to ask you to write a policy book or describe this, this, or that. If we were to say that frameworks, maybe a solution, quote unquote, is people putting on a different approach, putting on a different pair of glasses. How would you just think of that conception as we finish this out? Um, first of all, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not anti-solution. So I, I do want to say that I appreciate a conversation that has some practical um, orientation to it. Um, I think you just put your finger on it, which is that I think orienting toward local, orienting toward actual uh, real people that you know that aren't avatars, but actually who are three-dimensional humans, you're sure of it. <laughs> orienting toward that at every level meaning at the level of conferences that, you're, that you run, policies that you design, potentially grassroots activism that you engage in, that orientation toward local and real strikes me as like the directional that I would take everything in. So yeah, go ahead. Let me ask you a follow-up on this, though, because this is our second episode. Mike and I are new to this. We're a foreign. We're we're primarily a foreign policy podcast. Obviously, I want we wanted to have this conversation so people could understand the framework that we're getting at. But how should we, as an editor, obviously, can you give us some advice? How should we conceive of trying to speak to a lot of these different foreign policy issues while also recognizing? that if we look at a lot of the different undergirding effects, what we are getting at is that we can't conceive of America and its role in the world without going to these local dynamics. So can you just give us some general advice for thinking about that? Yes, I would like you to consider that there's no such thing as foreign policy. I want you to consider the idea that actually um, people at a local level are experiencing the consequences of American policy, whether you it, sitting in your tank and thinking, as Mike likes to put it, whether you have decided to slap that, um, that policy with a foreign label or with a domestic label. The bottom line is, is at this point, there's no difference. And, and we can, I mean, this is a subject for a whole other podcast, but I want to encourage you to think about all of the ways in which all kinds of policy intersect in one human's life. In one farmer's life in upstate New York, what happens in the middle of China is incredibly, immediately, directly responsible for what happens to his life in the coming year. Is that domestic policy or foreign policy? My whole point is, is I don't care what you call it. I want you to start from him. Mm -hmm. Start from how it's going to affect his life. 
And I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna about this and pretend that I don't understand how global politics and power and influence works. I'm simply saying that we've lost all um, prioritization. And we imagine that foreign policy is something that happens far away. Um, I think if we root it back in Americans and in the lives of the citizens of the country that um, politicians and policymakers are responsible for, um, well, you may see a lot open up like in what you can even conceive of and the solutions that you can even think of if you start down low with the rest of us. It's incredibly helpful. I was a, I was a little, I, I thought it was a great piece, great piece. I was a little depressed at the end though because I can't imagine how we get out of this without... Where, where, where it left me, I don't know if this was your intention, but it left me thinking that the answer to this is religious, actually. There has Michael, to be... Michael, I tell you something. Can I tell you something? One of my favorite things is that there's a, there's a study done um, that compared uh, Holocaust survivors, a group of Holocaust survivors who had committed suicide after surviving the Holocaust, and a group of Holocaust survivors who actually went on um, not only to lead full and happy lives, but in many cases to be uh, very successful, um, mm. sometimes financially, sometimes in their field. Um, and what the researcher determined was that the difference between those two groups of people were in um, how they understood their, their life story. Was the Holocaust the end or was it the beginning and it was actually the story was, was the book that they were writing about their lives a book about renewal and overcoming or was it a tragedy if it was a tragedy then they needed to finish the book and end mm. it if it was a story about renewal it just got started so decide which way you want to see yourself decide which way you want to see america are we at the end or did we just get started I don't know. This podcast is just getting started. <laughs> With that perfect segue out, uh, Lana, thank you so much for joining. Uh, uh, this has been really great, and hopefully we'll be able to update this renewal story at a later point. I hope so, too. Thank you so much, guys. Counterbalance, a story of renewal. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. We'll be back at you next Wednesday. As per usual, huge thank you to the Hudson Institute for supporting our work. Huge thank you to everyone who rated and subscribed so far. Please continue to share. We're excited to keep giving you guys really great conversations on foreign policy and America's role in the world. See you next week. <laughs>